this morning, we are going to continue in Matthew 26, so you can turn there. And this morning, we get to the very essence of what the gospel is. Now, granted, when we use the term the gospel, we are referring to a very particular set of declarations that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, and that is the gospel. But really, the word gospel was a very common word in Koine Greek. It simply meant good news. Good news was proclaimed to the shepherds when the angels came and said, there's a child born. And we're told specifically that that was good news. Jesus walked around teaching the gospel of the kingdom, which just means good news about the kingdom. And he preached that before his death, burial, and resurrection. So recognize that the word gospel simply means good news, but when applied to the set of declarations that lay at the very heart of Christianity, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, that then we refer to it as the gospel, the good news. And really, all of Christianity exists because of this. All four of the gospel writers filled in the blanks and told us about Jesus' ministry and his three and a half years on the planet. All of the Old Testament tells us about the relationship between God and Israel and their succession of wars and succession of kings and their prophets. And, and all of that, if we didn't have that, but we still had the declaration that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again and ascended to his father, we would still have the gospel. We would still have the essence of what it is. Because that event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that event is all our hope, is all our security, the anticipation that he's going to come back and that he's going to get us and that he's going to take us and that we are going to be resurrected and that we're going to come out of our graves or be instantaneously changed. All those things are predicated on the reality that Jesus himself did it already, did it first. He did live. He did die. He did resurrect. He did rise to heaven to sit at his father's right hand. And because he did that, we have hope that we also are going to do that. So this part of the book of Matthew is getting to the very essence of that thing that we call the gospel. Now for the first part of this morning, we're going to talk about Judas. And recognize that Judas was prophesied, predicted in advance that he was going to betray Jesus. In fact, I know that I told you to turn to Matthew 26, but somebody look up Psalm 41, verses 7 to 10. Because in that particular psalm, a messianic psalm, David tells us specifically that someone who is sitting at the table of Jesus is going to rise up against him. Someone's going to lift his hand against him. And so this is prophesied. This is told in advance. This has to happen. And that's hard for us to think about. Very often we just don't think about it. But it's very hard for us to realize that Jesus picked his betrayer. And he knew from the beginning who the betrayer was going to be. And he knew from the beginning that the scripture said that there was going to be a betrayer. And so none of what's happening is an accident. None of what's happening is, oh, poor victim Jesus. This is all happening because it was decreed, it was determined, and in fact, according to the book of Revelation, it was determined before the foundation of the world. And so these are things that are playing out in time, but in fact, they're prophesied by God who knew exactly what he was going to do. Somebody got that? Psalm 41, starting at verse 7, you got that? Okay, you got to stand up and read this to the group. I know. I know. Okay, good. <laughs> so, all that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, said they, keep it fast unto him, and now that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. 
Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requite them. So even in the Psalms, it said that there was one that was going to sit at his table, who was going to be his friend, who was going to eat his bread, and who was going to lift up his hand against me. So that meant that someone was going to have to be with Jesus, was going to have to participate in his ministry for three and a half years, and then raise up his hand against him, because it says so. It's already prophesied. So when we start in Matthew 26, verse 14, and we read, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? Well, then there's no surprise there. This has already been prophesied by David. And so, therefore, it has to happen. Now, understand that every time that I say this has to happen, that what I'm actually saying is either the Bible's true or it's not. What I'm saying is either the word of God is trustworthy or it's not. And every word that God has ever spoken has to come true or the Bible's not accurate. But so far, the batting average, where the Bible's concerned, is a 1,000. So far, every time the Bible has predicted something and put it in a particular time frame, those things have happened. And that gives us great confidence that everything else that the Bible says that hasn't happened yet has to happen. Because everything else that the Bible predicted did happen. So now this is really hard. This is hard to wrap our brains around. Judas, who Jesus chose, had to betray him. So how much free will really did Judas have? None. He had to go betray Jesus. Because Jesus, since before the foundation of the world, had been prophesied to die on this particular Passover. And so he had to die that Passover. And that meant that someone had to betray him. Someone had to turn him over to the Romans and turn him over to the Jews. And somebody had to do that. And Jesus picked Judas in particular and said, you, it's you. Here's what happened. He said to the chief priests, he said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's not a mistake that the price of Jesus' life is told right here in the book of Matthew because the story we just read last week was about Judas saying, oh, what about the poor? Oh, that oil should have been sold. And then the money should have come to the poor. But first it should come to me. First it should be in my bag. First I should distribute the money to the poor. And then we read last week that he was a thief. And that's why. Now, do you think that Jesus knew he was a thief? Yes, absolutely. Do you think that Jesus knew that this guy would sell him for money? Yes, absolutely. But because he was greedy, because he loved the things of this world, because he preferred money, he preferred his money over Jesus. And so these chief priests were able to say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And he made a deal. Now, there are a couple of verses in the Old Testament that do refer to 30 pieces of silver that are kind of interesting, so we'll look at them. One is in Exodus 21:32. Somebody go there. And in that particular instance, what we find out is that 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. If somebody had an animal, an oxen, and that oxen was to gore somebody else's servant... Well, then the person who owned the oxen had to give 30 pieces of silver to the owner of the slave. Because after all, you have a servant, you've got a monetary investment in him, and he's doing work that's increasing your welfare. And so if he's hurt and can't work, well, then that's a detriment to you. And so someone has to pay you. Who's got that? Somebody got Exodus 21, 32? Read that, Tom. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, 
The owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So the ox has to be killed, and a person has to pay the 30 pieces of silver. So that became the price of a slave in the Old Testament. But more interesting than that is Zechariah chapter 11. Everybody turn to Zechariah for a moment. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 is what I'm interested in. At this point, Zechariah has been prophesying and he's, He has two staffs, and he's called one of the staffs union, and he's called the other staff favor. He's using these as visual aids so that people understand God's relationship to Israel. Verse 10, let's start there. It says, and I took my staff called favor, and I cut it into pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wage. Okay, so now it's the wage of a prophet. A moment ago, it was the price of a servant. But now listen to what happens with it. The Lord said to me, throw it, the 30 shekels of silver, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Okay, what's that about? Why would God say specifically, okay, you've been paid your wage. You've got your 30 shekels of silver. Now take those 30 shekels of silver and throw it to the potter. Well, at the time that Jesus was walking on the planet, there was something known as the potter's field. And it was a field where people would place broken pottery. Every day, people were carving new pottery out of the clay of the ground. And it was cheap. It was easily replaced. And if it broke or something, you would just throw it into the potter's field. But now look at this. Turn with me over to Matthew 27. Go forward. Judas actually had a moment of remorse after he had betrayed Jesus. And when he saw that Jesus had died, which indicates that Judas didn't think that the Jewish leaders were actually going to kill him, when he saw that Jesus had died, he realized that the money he'd been given was blood money. And so he took the money back and he threw it down in front of the Jewish leaders. They then, after all of this uh, chicanery, after meeting at night, after the illegal judgments, after the crucifixion of Jesus, after all that, they suddenly have a tinge of conscience and say, we can't put this in the treasury because it's blood money. So what are we going to do with it? And they end up doing this. Verse 7 of chapter 27 says, And they counseled together, and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. In other words, the 30 shekels of silver that actually were the price of a prophet and the price of a servant, that 30 shekels of silver went to buy a potter's field where dead men were buried. That's why God, fully knowing, knowing in advance that that's what he was going to have done with the 30 shekels of silver that were going to be used to betray his son, he knew full well that that's where it was going to end up, in a potter's field. And so he told Zechariah, now that you have the 30 pieces of silver, throw it to the potter's field. In fact, Matthew makes the connection and says, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. Zechariah 11, 12 to 13. He's he's quoting right from it. Now, by the way, some people will say, oh, what about the fact that Matthew mentioned Jeremiah there? And it was actually a quote from Zechariah. Aha, I found something wrong with your Bible. 
but you just have to look at the customs of the ancient Jews. They used to keep the, the Old Testament separated into three large pieces. That's where the word Tanakh comes from. If you've ever heard the word Tanakh in referring to the Old Testament unified scriptures, it's because those three words, Torah and Nevi'im and Ketavim, refers to the three divisions of the scripture. And it means the law and the prophets and the writing, the poetry books. And the prophecy books were known by the first one that was bound into the prophecy books. And the first book that was bound in those prophecy books was the book of Jeremiah. And so if you just wanted to make a general reference to the prophets, you would say, in Jeremiah. And by saying that, you were referring to all the prophetic books. So it turns out there's no conflict in the Bible. It turns out that it's just the customs of the Jews. You just have to be familiar with that, and you won't have any more worries or fears. So the 30 pieces of silver which were given to Judas by which Jesus was bought was the same price that the Bible already said was the price of a prophet and the price of a slave. When it was the price of the prophet, it was thrown to a potter's field because Judas took those same 30 pieces of silver, gave it back to the Jews. The Jews couldn't put it in the treasury, and so they bought a potter's field with it. And Judas went out and hung himself, and when he died, he landed in the potter's field. And all of that, God knew. All of that, God predicted. All of that was written into the prophetic books, because nothing that's happening here is a mistake. It had to happen. So from that point on, let's go to verse uh, 15 of chapter 26. It said, what are you going to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, oh my, we have to talk about that. There's a feast. There's a feast coming. I've mentioned Passover already here. But there's the feast of unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread starts on Nisan 15th and goes for a full week. But Nisan the 14th is the day of Passover, but it's also the day of preparation, when all the Jews had to get all of the leaven out of their houses and out of their camp to prepare themselves for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was coming. And so if you talk about that week of unleavened bread and you talk about that extra day, the 14th, and tack that on, all of that became known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the day of Passover. Then also, as you know, by Jewish reckoning, by a lunar calendar, the day does not start at midnight the way our days start. The days begin at evening. At that point where there's equal amounts of light and dark, the new day has begun. So technically, when we're talking about Passover, we're talking about the 14th day of Nisan, and actually we're talking about the evening of the 13th. And so that allowed, that reckoning allowed Jesus to take the Passover, eat the meal, implement the Lord's Supper, he could do all of that the evening of the 13th, which was the beginning of the 14th, and then be tried all night long and the next day right at Passover while the priests were sacrificing the sacrificial Paschal lamb. He was dying on Golgotha because from the beginning of his ministry, three and a half years before that, John the Baptist had identified him as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And from the minute he's identified as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, he had to die on a Passover because he had to be the Paschal lamb. And a moment ago, I said, from the minute that John recognized him, but in reality, we read in the book of Revelation that he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So actually, this was determined that he would die on that particular Passover, that particular day, that particular year. That was determined before the world began. We can't even wrap our heads around that. But God knows exactly what he's doing. 
Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Now we've been looking at his previous ministry for three and a half years. He's been saying, my time is not yet. My time is not yet. At one point, they were so upset with him that a crowd of people took him to the edge of a cliff with the intention of throwing him off. And he turned around and walked through the middle of them because his time was not yet. At one of the feasts where all the men would go to Jerusalem because it was the feast to the Lord, they all, his brothers all said to him, why don't you go up to the feast and do the miracles? Show yourself to everybody no one who wants to be known keeps himself as secretive as you do. Go and show off. Do the miracles that you can do. And he said to them, my time's not yet. Not yet. Because he knew that once they recognized who he was in Jerusalem, that they would kill him. And so, not yet. But now it's time. And so he has said, go into a city to a certain man and they, of course, are going to ask, what man? Go, go to a certain man. Just go. Mark 14. Turn over there for just a minute. Keep your finger in Matthew because Mark fills in a couple of blanks. Turn to Mark 14 because actually Mark records more detail than Matthew records. And it's the details that count. Verse 12 of chapter 14 says, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover was sacrificed. Okay, that's everything that I just told you. They took to calling it the first day of unleavened bread, but it was also the Passover, the day that the, that the Paschal lamb was killed. So on that day, this is now the 13th, just about evening, they say to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Okay, what's the likelihood that the exact moment that these two guys walk into the city, there will just happen to be a man with a pitcher of water? What's the likelihood? 100%. 100% because God said it. The minute that Jesus said, when you go into the city, you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And he's going to go into a house. That's the next thing it says. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So there's going to be a man. He's going to have a pitcher of water. He's going to have a house which just happens to have a large upper room where you can prepare the Passover. And all you need to say to him is, the teacher needs your room. And he'll say, okay. Now, one of two things is true here. Either Jesus is in complete and utter control, or he got real lucky. I, I believe he's in control. He's in control of everything that's happening here. So go and meet him wherever he enters. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Go and prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. That's, that's remarkable. He's in charge of the details. Look, let's talk theological for a moment. Because I contend that God's in charge of the details. When we talk about God's sovereignty over everything, when we talk about his foreordination and predestination and election and stuff like that, people have a tendency to say, okay, that part's in the Bible, but God's in charge of big stuff. He's in charge of opening up the earth and swallowing a whole band of people. Big stuff. That's where God's in charge. But small stuff, little stuff, details, minutia, throwing a lot into the lap, God's not in charge of that. 
Which, of course, whenever anyone says that, I have to challenge them, well then, where will you restrict God? At what point will you say, you have control over all this, but you don't have any control over this? The Bible says he's in charge of everything. The lot is cast into the lap, and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Little things, detail things. Jesus said things like, behold the sparrows. Two of them are sold for a farthing. They're cheap. You can get a sparrow anywhere, anytime. And yet, not a one of them can fall from the sky without your father. Without God's active participation, a bird can't die. Jesus' point in bringing that up is he says, aren't you more valuable than that? Behold the lilies of the field. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't spin. And yet Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. And if God will so dress the grass, won't he take care of you? So I believe, I contend, I think the Bible says over and over, no, take away the I think. The Bible does say over and over that God is in charge not only of the big things, but of the details, of the minutia, of the little things. Now, let me make this real plain. You want him to be like that. Amen. You want him to be in charge of the details. Because I'm here to tell you, it's the details that will mess you up. It's the details that get in the way. Even the Bible says that. You know, it's small foxes that spoil the vine. It's the details. A few weeks ago, I couldn't do that. Okay, that looks like a detail, right? Okay, I'm glad he's in charge of the details. I'm glad that he's in charge of every cell, every corpuscle, every vein, every muscle in my body. Because he's that kind of God. So God who's in charge of the details can say, go into a city, you'll find a man, he's going to be carrying a picture Follow him. He's just going to happen to go into a house. And in that house, there's going to be a large upper room. And it's going to be furnished. And it's going to be prepared. And you go there and you set up the Passover. Because I have to take the Passover today. I have to be together with you. At that Passover, he said to them, with great longing, I have longed to take this Passover with you. He had to institute the Lord's Supper that night. He had to do these things. So nothing was left to accident. Nothing was left to chance. Everything was particular. And we just get so used to God's particular that we think it, it's random. But it's not. It's exactly what God has prepared. Go back to Matthew. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 19 says, And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, verse 20, when evening had come, he was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. This was a typical way of sitting around a table. They didn't have chairs and stools. They had a very low sitting table, and typically people would just sit on the ground. And they would oftentimes lean back on each other. And so he was reclining at the table. This is the way that a feast was typically held. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Why? Because it's written. It's determined. It's already been said. The psalm said that someone who's sitting at my table sharing my bread is going to raise his hand against me. Here I am at the table and here's the bread. All we need is the betrayer. And we're going to find out that prophecy works. Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Eleven of them were right. This is an interesting moment. Think about this moment. Because Jesus has already had a conversation with Peter where he has said to him, Satan desires to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. So Jesus is referring to an actual conversation he had with Satan, where Satan, who knows the scripture very well, knows of these 12, I get one of them. And worse, he thinks it's Peter. He's always saying the wrong thing. He's constantly putting his sandal in his mouth. He's constantly rebelling against what Jesus has said. And so Satan thinks he's going to get him and says, you're the one. In fact, uh, you would be a goner. You would be sifted like wheat had I not intervened on your behalf. Notice he did not say to Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he can sift you like wheat. Now go get busy. He didn't tell Peter to go do anything. He said, one thing's keeping you, one thing's saving you, me. I stood in the gap. I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And because I know what's going to happen, and I know you're not the one that he gets, therefore, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. So this had to be a scary moment for everybody at the table because Jesus has spoken these realities that Satan knows he gets someone. They each said, is it me? And surely not I, Lord. And verse 23, and he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. For the first time he has said out loud, who it is. Up until then, he's never said. There's 12 people. Nobody knows which one. Even Satan wants to know which one. I get one of them. Who is it? And now out loud, he has said, whoever dips his hand in the bowl at the same time I do, that's him. The one who dipped his hand with me into the bowl is the one who will betray me. Notice the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. Again, Jesus going right back to the scripture. One more time, Jesus says, I have to go. This has to happen. This all has to fall out exactly the way it's been prophesied and been determined since before the foundation of the world. Go and look at it. Look at where it's written. Look at the prophecies. This is going to happen to me according to how it's written. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Yeah, woe to that man. We all know the end of the story. We know that he eventually is going to hang himself. Woe to that man. Jesus already said, Peter, Satan desires to have you and sift you like wheat. What did he do to Judas? He used him and used him to betray him, and he used him up, and then he left him, and then he hung himself. It's a really sad story. And yet, a prophesied story. It would have been better for him, for the betrayer. It would have been better for that man if he had simply not been born. It would have been good for that man to not exist. Woe to that man who betrays Jesus. It would be better for him not to be born, but now he's going to suffer. And so, Judas who was betraying him, answered and said, just like the others, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. You've declared it out loud. You're the one. And the next thing we read about him is that Satan took him. And I think that the power of Christ was preventing Satan from taking him till that moment. Now, this was so prophesied, this was so predicted, this was so anticipated that, again, he's referred to as the son, the very son of perdition, not spoken of as the son of God, but Jesus accredits his parentage to perdition. Perdition means eternal destruction or utter damnation, and he's the child of it. You want to see it yourself? Go over to the book of John, John 17. Let's all go there. John 17, 12. Keep your finger in Matthew. John 17, 12. 
Oh my, I'm tempted to read all of John 17. Because this is his high priestly prayer. This is Jesus' last prayer to his father before all these things come about. Chapter 18 of John is Judas betraying Jesus. And so this is him praying to his father and saying unbelievably remarkable things. Oh, we're all here. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> Did I hear a woo-hoo? Did somebody woo-hoo chapter 17 of John? That's good. I like that kind of enthusiasm for the Bible. Read more because there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. Here we go. Chapter 17, verse 1. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I manifested thy name to the men that thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from thee. And they believed that thou didst send me. So I pray, I ask on their behalf, I do not pray for the whole world. But of those whom thou hast given me, that's who I'm praying for because they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, thy name which thou hast given me that they may be one even as we are one. And while I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not a one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Why? So that the scripture may be fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? Jesus himself just confirmed that the scriptures say, that the son of perdition is going to betray him. That's good authority. You've got it on Jesus' own authority that one of his 12 is going to betray him, and he calls him the son of eternal damnation. So this has to happen. By the way, the same way that Jesus gave nicknames to some of his apostles, the same way that he called uh, John and James the sons of thunder, or the same way that he referred to Peter as the little rock, you know. He, he gives people names. And this is before Judas has betrayed him, and he's already referred to him as the son of perdition. He already knows. He knows what's going to happen. Go back to Matthew. We're nearly done. Back to Matthew. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, says verse 24. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And he said to him, You have said it yourself. And while they were eating... Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, 
this is my body. Now, over the course of many, many years, around Passover time, when we've done our communion, I've taught on the Passover, I've taught on the Lord's Supper, but I do want to mention a couple of things here, just to just points that I usually don't make during our Lord's Supper period. This phrase, take, eat, this is my body, and the next verse, when he had uh, taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That phrase, this is my body, this is my blood, has become one of the central sticking points between Catholics and Protestants. Now, we here at this church, we are not Catholic. We are Protestant. And a lot of people don't know what the protest was all about. A whole lot of people don't know their history and don't know that the church at some point, well, actually the 14 and 1500s, that the church protested against the church at Rome and said you're doing these things wrong and therefore we are going to protest and therefore we're going to fix the church and when the church couldn't be fixed they went outside the church and they became known as the protestants now most of those protestants guys like Martin Luther Ulrich Zwingli John Calvin John Knox most of those guys were what we would refer to as Calvinists because they went back to the word of God. What does the word of God actually say? So I argue and have before and have often that if today you are not Catholic, but you are Protestant, thank a Calvinist. Because it's Calvinists who really drove that and uh, made that separation between the church at Rome and their traditions and back to the Bible. What does the word say? Sola Scriptura. Now, this particular book, which I've brought with me, I know I said we're almost done. I lied. Um, good. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. This, is, this book is by Lorraine Bettner. Um, Lorraine Bettner was a Presbyterian writer. He wrote The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, that book. Big, thick, heavy book. And uh, I read it many years ago. That book had a very profound effect on me. And in fact, my book, By Grace Alone, is a simplified version of his book because I wanted to write a book that was just more approachable by folks. Well, this is his book on Roman Catholicism by Lorraine Bettner. And I'm just going to read a little piece because, again, nothing more fun. And, and really, uh, the reason that I'm reading for you from Lorraine Bettner is so that if you disagree, your disagreement is with Lorraine Bettner, who's dead. And so you can go argue with him anytime and, and just don't argue with me about it. Because what do you want from me? I had a stroke. Okay, there you go. <laughs> In the New York Catechism, Lorraine Bettner writes, we read, Jesus Christ gave us the sacrament of the Mass to leave to his church a visible sacrifice which continues his sacrifice on the cross until the end of time. Did you understand that statement? Because the, the Mass, the bread and wine on the altar which an altar is a place where sacrifices take place, which is why the altar is at the middle of a Catholic church. When you walk into a Catholic church, you look at an altar. You don't look at a pulpit. It was the reformers. It was the Protestants who put the pulpit back at the center of the front of a church. In fact, many, many Protestant churches, like ours, don't even have an altar because the sacrifice is already made. But this declaration made by the New York Catechism, a Catholic publication, is that every time they do the Mass on a regular basis, they are continuing the sacrifice that Jesus made. That's the reason that when you look at a Catholic crucifix, Jesus is still on the cross, still being sacrificed over and over again. And that's a sacrifice that's going to continue until the end of time. But that's not what the Bible says. 
The Bible says that he was on the cross and then he was taken down from it and he went into a grave and he got up again and that sacrifice was finished. That's why the bracelet that Thaddeus wears is so important. He wears a bracelet that in the leather is carved the word tetelestai or tetelestai, which is the single Greek word that is translated in our English translations as it is finished. We just read it a moment ago in his high priestly prayer to the Father that he accomplished what he came to accomplish. And so he made the sacrifice. The sacrifice is done. He rose up to heaven, and therefore we can all have great confidence that he, on our behalf, took care of our sin problem. Anyway, I need to read. It's a visible sacrifice that continues his sacrifice on the cross until the end of time. The mass, listen closely, the mass is the same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the cross. That's a Catholic publication. Holy communion is the receiving of the body and blood of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. Did you understand that statement? It's saying that when he said, this is my body, which he was still living in, It was still his flesh and blood presenting them with the bread, but that when he said, this bread is my body, that it actually does become his body. My aunt is a a Catholic woman. She's dead now, but she lived the last several years of her life in a, a home for people who were married but wanted to be nuns. So they were nuns in practice, but not in fact, because they had been married. She one time took the communion while she was pregnant. And then, because she was pregnant, she threw it up. And the church actually cut out the piece of carpet onto which she had thrown up and burned it because she had thrown up the body and blood of Christ. They so believe that it's the body and blood of Christ, they'll go to those kinds of extremes because they believe that Jesus is never done sacrificing. He's sacrificing all the time. So if you come and you're aware of something that you've done, you go to the confessional and you say, these are my sins. This is the last time I took confession. These are my new sins since my last confession. And then the priest says, okay, now get to work. Do some Hail Marys, do some Our Fathers, do some penance. Get to work. Clean yourself up. And then to whatever degree you can't clean yourself up, make sure that you take the Mass because the Mass is the continual sacrifice of Christ and that's how you can eventually stand before God in your own righteousness because you have made yourself good enough to be received by God. And that is antithetical to everything we believe here. What we believe is that by his one finished sacrifice, he made us good enough to be in God's presence. And as far as our works are concerned, our best righteousness is filthy rags. We've got nothing we can bring to God. We've got no good works that we can come proclaim before him. I've got to keep going. got to keep reading. The creed of Pope Pius IV which is one of the official creeds of the Roman church, says, quote, I profess that in the Mass is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice. That is, a sacrifice which satisfies the justice of God and so offsets the penalty for sin. In other words, the bread and wine become a propitiatory sacrifice. And when you participate in the bread and wine, you are propitiating your own sin. And that's good enough, apparently. Then the next statement, this is still Pope Pius IV talking, he said that that propitiatory sacrifice, which is sufficient to satisfy the justice of God and offsets the penalty of sin, is done for the living and the dead, and that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, there is truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul 
and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pope talking for you. In the bread and wine is the actual divinity and soul of Christ. Now, do we believe any of that? No. Does the Bible say any of that? No. When he said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was living in his body, which contained his blood. And so we believe, we teach, that these things are like a touchstone. They're like symbols. They're like emblems. And that they represent his body and blood. They represent the sacrifice that he was going to make. And the sacrifice that he made, that is finished, that is done with, actually, adequately, sufficiently paid the price for sin. We remember that he paid the price for sin, but we don't pay it over and over again. Yes, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Absolutely. Also, that there is a conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, which the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. You hear the word substance right in it. The substance of the thing is changed. Hocus pocus. Now, the reason that my daughter said hocus pocus, I have to tell you, is that that phrase, hocus pocus, which magicians say, presto changeo, hocus pocus. The reason they say it is because the Catholic priests in Latin used to say, hocus corpus meus. This is my body. And then they believe that it changed in its substance to the body of Christ. And people would make fun of them for saying hocus corpus meus and say hocus pocus. Hocus pocus. You've done a magic trick. You made it change. And that's the actual place that that phrase comes from. So when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, the importance of it is this phrase right here. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. That's the importance of it. The importance is that all things under the old covenant were accomplished, were done, were covered by blood. There had to be a blood sacrifice in order for things to be hagios, to be holy, to be separated to God. And so when Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, he was saying the new covenant is going to go into effect when my blood is spilled and that blood covers your sins. Here, let's read this just so you don't think I'm making it up. And then we, we will call it a morning. This is the end of it. Uh, somebody turn to Exodus 24, 8. Everybody else go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. And I've got somebody going to Exodus 24, 8. Did somebody actually go there or did everybody go to Hebrews? You got it, Joni? Would you read it for us nice and loud? And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Okay, so he said, according to all these words. This is the covenant that God has made with you, you people, the Israelites that are at Mount, at Mount Sinai. This is the blood of the covenant that he has made with you. Jesus used those exact words when he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant being made with you. The old covenant couldn't do it. If the old covenant had adequately done it, if the old covenant was sufficient to save people, if the old covenant could cover people's sin and rebellion, there wouldn't need to be a new one. But there was a new covenant because the old covenant didn't do it. The same way as you must be born again, because your first birth didn't do it. This newness, this, this qualitative newness to this covenant. Are we in Hebrews, everybody? Let's start in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 20 is where I'm trying to get. But let's back up just a little bit. Because verse 18 says, Therefore the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. 
But when every commandment had been spoken by Moses, that's what Joni just read for us, the words of this covenant. When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, all with blood. And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, what he's saying is things on the earth, the tent, the tabernacle, the furniture, all that, calf blood, lamb blood, goat blood, oxen blood was sufficient. But it didn't do it. It didn't accomplish it. It didn't accomplish forgiveness for sin. So since that's a copy, the law and the tabernacle, all of that is a copy of the heavenly reality. And therefore, the heavenly reality has to be covered with a better blood. And that's why the Son of God came to earth and shed his blood. Because it was the better covering. For Christ did not enter into a holy place that was made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But he entered into heaven itself, and now he is to appear in the presence of God, look at the next words, for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often. Okay, you Roman Catholics. Nor was it that he should offer himself often. Why? Because the one sacrifice was good enough. The one sacrifice was sufficient. There was no reason to do it over and over again, nor that he should offer himself often as the high priest would enter into the holy place year by year with blood that was not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer, Jesus would have needed to suffer oftentimes since the foundation of the world. But now, once... At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you see the difference between what we believe, what the Bible says, and what the Catholic Church believes? And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Well, that's me. I'm eagerly awaiting him. Amen. I'm looking forward to him coming back and getting his church. The one who left the planet is coming back to the planet, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm anticipating that, and because that's my heart, because I anticipate that, because it's my longing and my hope, then I know that the Holy Spirit of God is inside me. If the Holy Spirit of God is inside me, securing me forever, then I'm secure because I was chosen before the foundation of the world when this whole plan was laid out in the first place. You get it? Yes, sir. Wow, that was a very Calvinistic sermon. <laughs> but it's exactly what the Bible says. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. And look, you can have hope. You can have confidence because of that. If all I could tell you, if you came to me and said, I'm in sin, I'm in trouble, I don't know what's going on, and all I've got for you is do better, <laughs> get to work, you wouldn't have come to me in the first place if you could do better. If you could do better, you'd be doing better. But the reason that we're all sinners is because we can't do any better than this. We might do slightly better. We might have a good day. Look at me go. <laughs> but the reality is we need a savior. We need somebody to stand between us and the holy God. And Jesus sacrificed himself to make up for our sin debt so that we are able to rush to the Father and, and 
come to his throne of grace, crying to him, Abba, Father, and know that what we're going to find there is grace sufficient for us because of the one finished sacrifice of Christ. And that's really good news. And I don't know if you needed that today, but I sure did. All right, we're done. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Oh, hey, just before they leave, not this Wednesday, but on June 1st, which is a week from Wednesday, we will continue our midweek service because Micah is dying for us to get to his book, which is called Micah, which is the next book that we're getting to. So I know right exactly where we left off. I know where we were. We're going to pick up right there. We'll be finished with that book soon and move on to Micah. And uh, that's going to happen a week from Wednesday. So make your plans accordingly. Now you can say goodbye to the Internet people. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.